If you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and grab them and turn to our passage this morning, which is Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. And as you turn, I have a question for you to consider this morning. What do you call something that sounds false but is actually true? It's a paradox. Paradoxes are statements that seem self-contradictory and absurd, but in the end, they're actually true. Uh, Some of the most famous paradoxes we can think of or be found in maybe a Charles Dickens novel. It was the the best of times and it was the worst of times. Or maybe in FDR's inaugural speech, the only thing we need to fear is fear itself. On the surface, these these things seem absurd and false. Yet when you study them more and you kind of embrace the tension of the sentence, you find a deeper meaning hidden within it. Another famous paradoxical statement was maybe what your parents said to you growing up when it came for discipline, when they said, I I do this because I love you, or this hurts me more than it hurts you. Uh, I don't know if your parents said that, but when they said it to me, I was like, this seems very contradictory. Uh, This does not feel true at all for me. I don't feel love, I only feel pain in this moment. Uh, But as you grow older and you understand, if you have become a parent, you understand what they meant. Uh, That parents often do things that feel unloving, but they do it because they they do love us. Uh, They do the unloving thing that feels unloving because they love us, and they don't discipline us because they enjoy it. It's painful, but they do it for our good. Paradoxes are powerful tools of communication that reward the patient and the earnest who are willing to find the truth hidden within them. And as Jesus shows up on the scene, he shows up telling us what the kingdom of God is like. The question is, are we willing and patient enough to see what it's like? Today we'll find that the kingdom of God is a paradoxical kingdom. We'll see this in our verses in 21 through 34. So follow along with me as I read the word of God. This is what Mark wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use. It will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which 
when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. And yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own, all his own disciples, he explained everything. So here in Mark chapter 4, we've seen that it's a, a change in scene. Uh, mainly Mark is a narrative, kind of following these stories and these encounters that Jesus had. But here in Mark 4, uh, Mark uh, departs from the narrative about Jesus and focuses solely on the teaching of Jesus. Last week in verses 1 through 20, we saw how Jesus began to teach us about the nature and character of the kingdom. In verses 1 through 20, he tells us the parable of the sower, helping us understand how people will respond to the kingdom as it goes forth into the world. And Jesus, in our passage today, gives us three more parables. And in these parables, he's helping us understand the nature and character and activity of the kingdom in the world. It's important for us to understand that with the parable, Jesus is teaching the na- about the nature and character and activity of the kingdom in the world. And each one of these parables is almost like taking a diamond and just twisting it and seeing it from every side. With these parables, if you have ears to hear, you will see and understand the kingdom more clearly. That's Jesus' aim in teaching us these parables. And with each parable, we'll find a paradox. So there's three, and this is my outline. First, the kingdom is concealed but revealed. Verses 21 through 25. The kingdom is futile but fruitful. Verses 26 through 29. And the kingdom is mere but mighty. It's verses 30 through 34. So three paradoxes we see in the word today. The kingdom is concealed but revealed. The kingdom is futile but fruitful. And the kingdom is mere but mighty. It is my prayer today that through this sermon you might see the kingdom of God more clearly. And that you would give everything you have to be a part of that kingdom. Let's look at point one now. The kingdom is concealed but revealed. We see this in verses 21 through 25. Uh, We don't know the setting if Jesus is only talking to the inner 12 and a few on the outside, or if he's talking to a large group. But regardless, Jesus starts with a rhetorical question. You see in verse 21, he says, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Jesus asks, What is the purpose of a lamp? What do you do with it? You bring a lamp, you know, you've seen those lamps from Jesus' day. Do you bring them in to, to put them under your bed or to put them under a basket? What's a resounding answer is no. You you bring a lamp in to to put it in the room so it lights up the whole room and so everyone can see what's going on in the room. Jesus asks a rhetorical question, but then he makes a very interesting statement. He says, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. And if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying, what is hidden and what is secret will be made manifest. It will be brought to light. But the question is, what is hidden? What is secret? What will be revealed? And Jesus is saying that the kingdom right now is concealed, but it is being revealed. 
So the kingdom has come, but the kingdom is coming. This kind of flows with what Jesus said earlier in 1 through 20, in verse 11, when he says to the 12 and those around him, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. The kingdom is a mystery. And those on the outside, they they cannot see it. They hear of the kingdom, but they really don't hear of the kingdom. For if they did, they would leave everything behind to gain the kingdom. Jesus had revealed the kingdom to those who were around him. And his exhortation is this, let the listener understand. If you have ears to hear today, you need to hear what Jesus says. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Mark is pretty repetitive. It is showing us that Jesus is the long-awaited king. He has come with his kingdom. The one that the people had been looking for had come down. But here's the problem. Jesus did not meet their expectations. He had not been at all what they had anticipated. People were looking for God's promised king to be like David, to come and slay their Goliath, which was Rome, and establish the Davidic rule once and for all. And it wasn't just the people of Israel who thought this. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1, when when Herod hears of the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, what does he do? He panics. Why? Because he too thought the, the Davidic slinging a sword, not sowing the word. And he is so terrified that he asks of the wise men, he says, well, hey, find out where this guy is so I can go worship him as well. And when they don't do that, what does he do? He kills every two-year-old boy and under in Bethlehem because he had heard of this promise. And Jesus says, well, the kingdom is here. It has come down, but it is very different than what you had imagined. For many, the kingdom is still concealed. But to those on the inside, it has been revealed. God's king is here and God's king will come. All the promises in the Bible have a partial fulfillment and they await a greater fulfillment. And that's what's happening here. We're seeing in Jesus' earthly ministry that this promise is being fulfilled, that he is being revealed as the king, that the kingdom has come down. But the greater fulfillment, a more partial fulfillment actually, wouldn't come until Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And still, we are awaiting the day for Jesus' kingdom to be finally and fully established on earth. We are waiting for him to, to come, for God's kingdom to be revealed. However, God has revealed enough for everyone to be able to enter. God's king is clear, and the message has gone. That's why Paul would say in Acts 17, God now commands everywhere, all people everywhere, to repent. Because we know enough about how to enter the kingdom now. So the question is not, has God revealed his king? The question is, have you heard of this king? Have you heard that the king has come? Have you seen the light of his kingdom? Or are you still dwelling in the darkness? Is it evident to your own heart and those around you that you have heard and responded to the king? Because if you have, it means you've changed your loyalty. That your loyalty lies no longer with self and sin, but with Jesus and his kingdom. And when you've truly heard, it changes everything about you. It's like those videos that you see on YouTube of someone who's been deaf their whole life, like an infant or a a kid or a parent, an adult, and they get a cochlear implant. Have you seen those? If you need a good cry, just go Google one of those today. Oh, it makes me weep every time I see it. Why? Because it is amazing seeing someone go from being deaf to hearing. And it's obvious to all when someone finally is able to hear. In those moments, their their eyes light up. 
and tears stream down their faces because they cannot help but to delight the, the fact that they finally hear. So too is it with the kingdom of God that you cannot deny once you've heard that the king has come. It changes everything about your life. It is obvious to everyone around you that your loyalty has transitioned from self and sin to Jesus and his kingdom. Your love and affection changes. It's no longer for your sin, but it's for Jesus, for his church, and for those who are far from Christ. You love what he loves, and you hate what he hates. You no longer rep your team jersey, you rep his team jersey. You count the the cost of following Jesus, and you're happy to pay it because you see it as worth it because you gain him and his kingdom. And you keep following Jesus regardless of the cost, regardless of the world throws at you. I mean, just think back last week to the parable of the sower. Think back to those two middle soils, the second and the third, the, the soil that was rocky ground and the soil that had the thorns. Jesus says that both of them hear and receive the word, and some with gladness, and even some would endure to the end, but what, or, or for a while, but not to the end. But what happened? What caused them to fade away? Many of them stopped listening to Jesus, and they started listening to another. Many of them started listening to the threats of the world or the offers of the world, and they decided that listening to Jesus was no longer worth it. So they abandoned Jesus all together. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is a life of listening to Jesus. True followers of Jesus keep listening to Jesus. When you got saved, it's because the Holy Spirit opened your ears spiritually so that you might understand and place your faith in Jesus. And the way you are sustained and sanctified is you keep listening to Jesus. It's the way we journey towards heaven. Continue to listen to Jesus together. The fight for faith in this life is a fight to keep listening to Jesus. In the moments of temptation, in the moments of doubts, the question is really this, who will you listen to? Will you listen to sin or will you listen to Jesus? Think about the last time you were tempted to sin. Many of you felt a struggle within and you were either listening to the voice of of the world, the flesh, and the devil or you were listening to the voice of Jesus. The choice when we're tempted to sin is will I choose the comfort of the world or will I choose the cross of Christ? Many of us, when we're in persecution, it's a, it's a, a, it's a, a choice to listen to either the world's threats, what they might take from us, or the promises of what Jesus will offer to us in the end. Many of us overcome with doubts. The question is, will you listen to your doubts or will you listen to Jesus? The Christian life is a life where we continue to listen to Jesus, where we choose to listen to him daily, to to put on his word, to put it before us, because we see that there's life in it. Brothers and sisters, how is your hearing? What voices are you listening to? Are the truths of Christ playing loudly in your ears, or are they playing softly in the background? What voices right now are from Jesus? What voices right now are, are tempting you just to drift just a little bit? Any voice that tempts you to deny God's word or to walk in sin is not from Jesus. And it is not for your good. Brothers and sisters, that's why God has given us to one another. If you want to listen better to Jesus, then just prioritize this gathering. 
because we're going to do our best to expose God's word to you each and every week. If you want to listen to better to Jesus, then get up each day and read God's word. Very basic, but very good for your soul. If you want to listen better to Jesus, then gather with other members during the week and say, let's read the Bible and let's talk about the Bible. If you want to listen better to Jesus, then find some people in the church and share about all the voices that are tempting you to fall away from Jesus and say, I want you to help me listen better to Jesus. Jesus has given us to each other so we all might hear him better. That's why we're all here inside of this church. And it is essential that we hear Jesus today. It's essential that we all hear and respond to Jesus today. Jesus tells us why in verses 24 through 25. He tells us, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, full transparency, when I first read this, I was like, what in the world is he saying? But if you stare further and you just keep reading it over and over again, it becomes more clear. Jesus is saying here, that those who hear and believe his word now, regardless of what it costs them in this life, they will be added eternal life in the end. They may lose everything now, but they'll gain something far greater than anything this world could offer, eternal life in the Son and in his kingdom forever. But to those who do not hear, or those who hear and reject the word, everything they've gained in this life will be taken away. And they will spend an eternity separated from the Lord Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what keeps you from following Jesus? What keeps you from turning from the world and turning to Christ? See, the major difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is this. We are all sinners. However, the Christian has heard the message about Jesus and has chosen to believe that message. We're all sinners but we're trusting that Jesus alone can cover our sins. So I would encourage you, hear the message of Jesus today and believe it. So for all of us, we have believed that Jesus actually came down, God in the flesh, lived the life we could not live, died on the cross in our place, and was raised from the dead. We believe every single bit of that is true. And we believe the only way for us to be made right with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's essential that you get this right. You being here today is both God's mercy and potentially God's judgment. If you do not hear, you will experience God's judgment. But if you'll hear, you will receive God's mercy. Respond in faith. Trust that the Lord Jesus is the only way to be made right. If you want to talk more about what it means to follow Jesus, we're not going to bring you up front. I'd love to talk with you out back afterwards and just share more with you about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. Jesus now commands everyone everywhere to hear his message and to believe it for it is essential for life now and for eternity. So the paradox of the kingdom is it's concealed, but it's revealed, and it will be revealed in the end. And next, not only is the kingdom revealed, but the kingdom is futile but fruitful. The kingdom is futile but fruitful. Look with me now at verses 26 through 29. Jesus says this, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. 
Jesus here is continuing to tell us about the nature and character and the movement of the kingdom in the world. And he reuses the sower analogy, but for a different reason. He's got a different point this time. He tells us the kingdom is like a man who goes out and sows seed and then goes about his life. He sleeps and rises night and day. Something miraculous happens. The seed grows. So much so that it says that he, he knows not how it grows. And to further the point, Jesus sell, says that the earth by itself produces a harvest of grain. So it's on its own, it's without aid or assistance that this grain and this harvest has come. What is Jesus telling us here? What does this mean? Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is God's work. That God alone has initiated the kingdom and God alone will consummate the kingdom. God alone is the one who brings about the kingdom in the world. Man may plant in water, but God alone is the one who gives the growth. That's what he's saying. That's why in verse 27, Jesus emphasizes that the man, he plants the seed, but what? He knows not how it grows. For us, the planting of the gospel often seems futile. Seems unclear what's happening. And to those around us, the kingdom, those on the outside, it seems kind of foolish. What is God actually doing in the world? And yet, God and God alone is sufficient for these things. God's work is happening in the world, whether we see it or not. He is moving mightily through the preaching of his gospel. That's what Jesus again emphasizes in verse 28. The earth produces by itself this full harvest. He talks about kind of these three phases. The first the blade and then the ear and the full grain. I don't think Jesus is saying that the kingdom comes in stages. I think he's saying the whole process from beginning to the end is all of God. God alone is the one who brings this about. Paul understand, understood this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. Neither I or Apollos or anything, only God who gives the growth. He's saying, you Corinthians, I don't know why you're teaming up and dividing and saying, I follow Apollos or Paul. We are nothing. God and God alone is the one who deserves the credit for what's happening in the world. Jesus is saying here in this passage, the kingdom will come, but not because of the strategies of men. The kingdom will come not because of the efforts of men. The kingdom will come not because of the force of men. Why? Because Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Now that may seem super basic, but it is important that we get this right today. That all Christians everywhere understand how the kingdom goes forth in the world. There are many today who in response to an increasingly secular age are looking for answers. And there are many who with good intentions are now calling Christians to more radical means to address the wickedness in the world, to push back the darkness, to fight on behalf of Christ, to, to Christianize our nation and nation via laws and, and judges, to establish Jesus' kingdom by force. But the problem is this, it confuses the nature and character of the kingdom. And even worse, Jesus never told us to do so. The kingdom cannot be and will not be established by men. If the kingdom was going to be physically established in this life, in this age, Jesus would have already done it. Because he said so to Pilate. Remember that in John 18, where Pilate says, hey, I hear that you're a king. Are you a king? And Jesus responds to him with this. This is in John 18, verses 36 through, what is it, 36? 
Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Why did Jesus say this? Because his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. He has not called us to fight, but to preach the gospel. That is what he has entrusted to us. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't say, go fight on my behalf, but go to the nations preaching the gospel. The kingdom comes about not by the force of men, not by the political efforts of men, but only by the grace of God through the preaching of his gospel. That is how the kingdom goes forward. We must keep this at the center. This is what Jesus has entrusted to the church around the world, to preach his gospel to the ends of the earth. It should be of great comfort to all of us. God is establishing his kingdom. It's happening, regardless of who is involved or not. See, earlier that we read in Daniel 2, Daniel raises up the kings that he wants, or God raises up the kings that he wants and uses them for his purposes, and he throws them away when he's done. God is king alone, and he will establish his rule and reign on earth, with or without us. That should be a comfort to all of us. And even more comforting is as he establishes his rule and reign, he calls us to be his fellow workers. Paul, going on later in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, we are co-workers with God. You are God's field, God's house. Paul could have said, hey, I understand that since God's building his kingdom, I don't need to do anything. I can sit back, relax, watch a little Netflix because God is building his kingdom. Paul understanding the fact that God was building his kingdom is what gave him him greater assurance to preach the gospel all the more boldly, to go to many more places, to many more people to preach the gospel because he understood that God was building his church. He was building his kingdom. He was doing it. And nothing could stop God from building his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, it is our responsibility to preach the word and to invest in Christ's church. This is the lot that he has given us in this life. No doubt it's encouraging to know that we're fellow workers with God, it still doesn't make evangelism any easier. I don't know if you've noticed this recently or not. Evangelism, evangelism is actually a hard thing. Awaking the spiritually dead is very challenging. It only happens by God's grace. And this is often, for me, one of the most discouraging parts of my life. As I, I labor and I pray and I pursue and I, I share the gospel with, with people in my life, and yet the Lord has not answered my prayers yet on these. But on a regular basis, I remind myself, I'm not responsible for the fruit, but for the faithfulness. When we stand before God on the last day, God will produce a fruit. And he will do it for his own glory and for the good of his people. But he'll hold us all accountable for our faithfulness. Faithfulness is what we should be after. And we should all trust God with the fruit of the kingdom. There's a quote that I read years ago by a man named Charles Bridges in the Christian ministry. He said this to young pastors. He said, the seed may lie in the ground until you do, and then spring up. It may be the case that the people you're pursuing in your life, that when you're long gone, God saves them so that he gets the credit and no one else. God is able and willing to save, so we should live and act that he is. We should pray in such a way. We we should preach in such a way. We should evangelize in such a way because we know that God and God alone can and will raise the dead. So parents, do not lose heart in evangelizing your kids. You don't know which family devotion, which conversation, which church service the Lord might use to save your children. 
those who have non-Christian family members and friends and co-workers, do not lose heart. Your labor is not in vain. You have no idea which part of the process you are in that person's life that God might bring them to faith in Christ. Many of us have non-Christian people in our life. For us as a church, I pray we would never lose heart in this opportunity to share the gospel in Fort Worth, Texas. Because I can't wait for the day when God finally answers our prayers. And we get to rejoice because God raised someone else from the dead when we see them baptized, identifying with the Lord Jesus. What motivation should we keep in front of us? Well, Jesus tells us in this passage. We should keep the the last day in the forefront of our minds. That's why we read Revelation 14. It's, It's a picture. Jesus is using that language of Joel 3, and it's a picture of what will happen in Revelation 14. Jack read it so well to us earlier. It's a picture of when the harvest is fully ripe, that the king of heaven, Jesus himself, will come in and put his sickle into the earth to reap his harvest. But in that moment, that, when that time comes, that reaping will also be salvation and judgment. So if you're, you're not a Christian, you're, you're making a choice to judgment and not salvation. To salvation and live and be found in him on that day. We labor now in evangelism because we know we'll never do it again in heaven. Heaven will need no missionaries. It will need no evangelism because all the work will be done. We share the gospel now because Jesus has promised a harvest. Harvest is coming. And when Christ descends, it will be obvious to everyone that preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel was never futile business. It was always worth the investment. God is truly building his church and all will see one day. That God's work is never futile. It is always fruitful. For many, the kingdom seems futile. But in reality, it will be fruitful in the end. And last, we see in verses 30 through 34 that the kingdom is mere but mighty. kingdom is mere but mighty. Look there with me now and follow along as I read this passage. And he said... With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. And yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples He explained everything. Here, Jesus gives us another lens to view the kingdom. And again, he starts with the question. He says, what shall we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? Now, in this moment, Jesus could have grabbed anything. He could have said that the kingdom of God is like the greatest cedar on earth. He could have said that the kingdom of God is like the reign of Solomon, but better. The kingdom of God is like the stars in heaven. But he didn't. What did he choose? A mustard seed. Now in Jesus' day, they used this in kind of a proverbial way as something that was the smallest thing on earth. Now this is like you saying that my four foot eleven and a half wife is going to win the dunk contest next year. It seems like an odd choice. She does have ups, but that's that's a bold choice. Jesus, in some ways, it almost feels hyperbolic, but, it, but it's not. 
He's telling us something about the nature and character and activity of the kingdom in the world. What happens to the seed when it grows into the ground? Oh, it grows. And it becomes the most mighty shrub in all the garden. So much so that it produces these large branches that even the birds of the air come and make nests in it. No one saw this mustard seed producing such great fruit. No one anticipated what it would produce and what it would do in the world. What is Jesus saying? What does this teach us about the kingdom? In its beginning and even parts of this life, the kingdom will seem insignificant. It will seem mere and small and kind of useless. But in the end, it will prove mighty. It will prove so significant that the the nations will marvel at what God has done in his kingdom. As I said earlier, many had been looking for the kingdom. Many had anticipated that the king would come, that he would be a mighty warrior, that he would come and defeat God's enemies and establish rule and reign on earth. They were looking for the kingdom. They were looking for the king. But yet Jesus did not meet the eye test. Many had thought, what good can come out of Nazareth? Many had thought that he would be handsome and tall and strong, and Jesus didn't meet those qualifications. Many saw this mighty king, and yet he came as a mere carpenter. Many saw that maybe he would be born in a palace, and yet he was born in a barn. And even his family initially had a hard time believing it. They questioned, and even times they, they sought to, to stop Jesus from his work. And despite all this, despite all the doubters, Jesus shows up and says, repent and believe, for the kingdom is here. In their eyes, it was insignificant. This frail man standing before him saying, the king has come. And it's surprising that Israel didn't believe such a thing. I mean, their his, history alone is the declaration that God takes what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That God takes what is strong, or weak in the world to shame the strong. I mean, just think back to Genesis chapter 12 with Abram. What does God do? He takes a man who's 75 years old, has no children, desires a son, but has no hope of a son. And God says, I'm going to take you, and it's through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. Kings and nations will come from you. You and your offspring will be a blessing to the ends of the earth. And did the promise come immediately? No, 25 years later. Think about Moses. Who would have chosen Moses to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt? God takes an 80-year-old man who has a hard time speaking, and he says, you'll be the one to bring salvation to my people. And as they get to uh, the sea, the Red Sea, when the greatest army on earth is breathing down their necks, what does God say? He says, lift up your staff, and the waters will part, and they will walk on dry ground. Think about David. The overlooked shepherd boy, God says, this is the one that I want to lead my people. God takes what is foolish in the world and he shames the wise. Think about this, the the son of God. Who would have considered that the son of God would take on human flesh and dwell among us to deliver us from our sins? No one saw it coming, but the history of redemption is this. God takes what is mere and insignificant in our eyes and he brings great glory to his name through it. That's what God is doing in the world. Jesus says no one will expect it, but in the end, it will be glorious and it will be mighty. How mighty? Well, Jesus alludes to it here. He says that the the birds of the air will come and take nest in its shade. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying that the Old Testament promise that the Gentiles will be grafted in will be fulfilled. 
See this clearly in several passages, but Ezekiel 17, verse 23 through 24 is really helpful. You can note that in your Bible and read it later. Ezekiel says this, On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the, fi- all the, trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. Make high the low tree and dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, God has done it. He has done what he promised he would do. The kingdom may be mere in our eyes. The world may scoff at the kingdom. But in the end, all the nations will gather around Jesus' throne. Even now, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. So now, through God's church, God is displaying his wisdom and his character and his nature in the heavenly places. This should be of great comfort. I think that's why Jesus told us this. Many expect the kingdom to be mighty in this age, but it won't be that mighty at times. It may be mere, but it will be mighty in the end. So keep being faithful. This is a good reminder that regardless of what our eyes see, regardless of what we see in the news, regardless of what we read in the world, Jesus has been, Jesus is, and Jesus will establish his kingdom on earth. It is a certainty right now. It will happen. It will take place. He's he's building his kingdom. And the day will come when the kingdom is finally and fully here. And even the greatest kings of the earth will stand And the kingdoms of the earth will stand and they will be embarrassed by the greatness of Jesus' kingdom. So we'll hear tonight from Daniel 2.44. Daniel says this to Nebuchadnezzar who had this dream. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. On that day, the mightiest armies and the greatest kingdoms will give way to a greater kingdom, which is Jesus's. It will shatter the rest. It will embarrass them all. So what shall we do while we wait on the kingdom? What shall we do as we wait for Jesus to deliver his promises? We should rest in the shade of his kingdom. We should rest in promises that regardless of what we see in the world his kingdom is being built and it will stand forever that he is establishing a kingdom that cannot be and will not be shaken so when you're tempted to fear and anxiety because of what's going on in the world rest in jesus's kingdom it will be established when you're tempted to sin to to go back to the old kingdom rest in the shadow of his kingdom that the temptation one day will be gone forever The struggle will end one day when Jesus establishes his kingdom. When you are staring at the face of death, rest in the shade of a kingdom that will never die. Jesus is and will establish his kingdom forever. So regardless of the cost, regardless of the temptation, keep finding rest and shelter in Jesus' kingdom, for it will be far better than you could ever imagine. The kingdom, it's a paradox. It has come, 
and it is coming. It's concealed but revealed. It's mere but mighty. It's futile but fruitful. And in many ways, the king on earth will mirror the king's life on earth. It's suffering and then glory. It's the cross and then the crown. It's trial and then triumph. And for us as Christians, all of us since Christ's ascension, we've all been living, ascension, have all been living in this tension. We have been saved, but we're waiting on our salvation. We are citizens, but we are exiles. We have been delivered from death, but we're still dying. But the day of detention will soon pass. And on that day when the Lord Jesus comes, there will be no parables. There will be no paradoxes. There will only be clarity that Jesus is king and his kingdom shall stand forever. And on that day, we will shout hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you as the one who has been and is and will establish his kingdom forever. Your will will be done on earth and your kingdom will come. Your, your glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Father, we pray you would send your son soon so that all the trials and temptations in which we face are no more. Father, we pray that you would keep adding people to your kingdom while we wait on you. Father, we pray for any among us who were dead in their sins, who were leaning on their own works of righteousness before you. May you cause them to repent and become citizens of your kingdom, even in this moment. Father, all those of us who are here, may we wait well for you. May we preach your word. May we sow the gospel. May we wait on you to produce an abundant harvest because you said you would do so. Father, sustain our hope and faith in you. Bring your kingdom soon, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.